1: Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
2: I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Walls.
1: And today we'll be discussing Secondhand Hearts, released on May 8, 1981. It was written by Charles Eastman, directed by Hal Ashby, and released by Paramount Pictures. In 1969, screenwriter Charles Eastman struck a two-picture deal with Warner Brothers, Warner would produce two of his scripts, The Hamster of Happiness and The All-American Boy, with the former serving as Eastman's directorial debut. I'm
2: sorry, Hamster of Happiness? The
1: Hamster of Happiness. You've seen this? You have. I've
2: seen this? We've all seen it. Yeah. We've all, what?
1: Warner later decided to swap the order and release All-American Boy first.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I am such an idiot.
1: (laughs) as director (laughs) eastman had gone over budget and unhappy with his cut the studio removed him from the film it would eventually release in 1973 starring john voight but performed poorly at the box office due in part to a lackluster release and warner brothers consequently shelved the hamster of happiness which at the time had john voight and goldie hahn attached eastman still desperate to see the film made offered to buy it back from the studio and ultimately paid more to get it back. Then they bought it from him in the first place. So they made a profit by buying his well, script yeah. and selling of it back course. to him.
2: Of if course. That's, if that's, of course that's what you're going to do.
1: I guess. I don't know why you would bother to buy it back. He tried to set the film up all over the place, still with himself directing, and eventually landed a deal with Howard K. Zucor Productions, with Susan Tyrell attached to star... Production was all set for the summer of 1973, when the deal evaporated overnight, and by the late 70s, Eastman came very near giving up on the story until he was approached in 78 by Robert Blake and his producing partner James William Guercio, who optioned the script through their production company, Caribou Productions. They approached Hal Ashby to direct after he had expressed interest early in the 70s. Ashby didn't want to take the film away from Eastman, and so backed down before, but by now, Eastman was sure the film would never happen. Ashby, who had a multi-picture deal with Lorimar, was gearing up to start production on Being There in the fall of 78 and decided on a schedule that allowed a six-week break between the productions of both films, intending to edit both simultaneously the following year. So he's going to sit down at one computer and focus on one movie. Computer. Computer, yeah. (laughs) They had computers. And then he was going to turn around to the other computer. He had two computers. They fit in the same room. The title was changed to Secondhand Hearts late in post. Its release, originally set for the fall of 1980, was delayed repeatedly, eventually landing here in May of 81, playing only in Los Angeles and New York before a cable television rollout. The film was considered a massive flop, and it got a shout-out in the same Rolling Stone article Big Bucks Big Losers that previously called out All Night Long for losing so much money this year. It didn't receive a domestic home video release until a 2013 DVD from Warner Archive.
2: But why did we watch it if it didn't have a wide release?
1: It did have a wide release. It was released in New York and Los Angeles. That's That's a wide wide release.
2: release? I don't think that's a wide release.
1: Hal Ashby is an important filmmaker.
2: I can guarantee you this is not an important movie to watch. No, it's
1: not. We start with a song from the film's composer Willis Allen Ramsey that reminded me a lot of Tracy Byrd's "Don't Take Her, She's All I Got."
2: I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> There's a lot of sliding <laughs> chords, but that's just because it's burned into my memory from yeah. watching both songs are burned into my memory times
1: because that song plays in this movie 25 times. <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> I don't know what we're talking
1: about. Did you watch uh, Secondhand Hearts? I did. Did but... you notice that for the first 45 minutes, the same song is playing the entire time? No. Oh. <laughs> well, it is. I, I tuned so much out. Here's a little bit of Willis Allen Ramsey's song from this film. People
2: don't want you.
1: And here's Tracy Byrd's Don't Take Her She's All I Got, which Jesse and I know from working on the movie Extract. Well, I said, Don't take her, she's all I got.
2: Please don't take her love away from me.
1: I'm
2: begging you, friend. Don't and take I like she's that song.
1: All yeah, all it's a good song.
2: I I don't like the song in this movie. <laughs> yeah,
1: I didn't like hearing that other song a hundred times in a row when I was working in editorial on yeah. it. Under the song, we get a very long opening crawl. Mm-hmm. You were about to meet Loyal Muke. That's the guy's name, Loyal Muke.
2: Yeah, well, thank goodness they wrote it out at some point because I couldn't tell what the hell she was saying the entire time she was screaming his name throughout this movie. Because
1: the way she says it is, lol
2: lol like like lol LOL.
1: she just says lol (laughs) hey lol hey lol you were about to meet loyal muke a man at the end of his rope a drifter a loser a bum loyal's been looking for something for so long he's forgot that's what he was doing at the moment loyal is the triple threat man at an el paso car wash
2: i think that's what it says i don't know what it means
1: there's a lot of commas in this there that are that are not necessary. Also, <laughs> at the moment, comma loyal, comma is the triple threat man at a local, comma El Paso, comma car wash. No, <laughs> take those out. Then you will meet Dinette Dusty, comma mother of Jim Bob's brood. Period. Who is Jim Bob? I
2: know. This
1: <laughs> He's <is> dead. <laughs> yeah. Why this are the we
2: weirdest like opening? It's. I don't want to call it a monologue. What do you call this? I. It's, it, it's just a bunch preamble. Of, it's just a bunch of random text that I probably could have gotten entirely from context by just starting the film.
1: For sure. Also, his widow. Yeah, okay, so we, we cover here that Jim Bob is dead and that Dinette is taking care of his children. Necessity left Dinette's kids, and these, these are their names. This is a list of their names in case the words confuse you here. Human, Iota and Sandra D. over in New Lizard with Jim Bob's folks Void and Nell Dusty. And it left Dinette in El Paso, a woman desperate to be with her children. And this is a story about what happened after Loyal and Dinette, who didn't know each other, went over to Juarez and got married last Tuesday. Or was it Wednesday? Loyal does remember hitting it pretty hard on Tuesday.
2: Now, does he mean the booze?
1: Or Dinette? Yeah, I wasn't sure. <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty sure he means the booze.
2: Okay.
1: We start in early morning darkness. A bus moves through the city. I should mention up front that because this is a Hal Ashby film, it would be impossible for me to convey the mood or idiosyncrasies of each performance, and so this summary is not a useful substitute for the film. You really have to see it for yourself No, no what this is. No. Not that I recommend checking it out. <laughs> I'll tell you everything that happens, plot-wise, but I'll be leaving out a lot of the dialogue because it is meandering and irrelevant to the story.
2: I think that is a generous description.
1: The bus comes to a stop in front of an auto shop and men start to pile out of it. One of the men pounds on a car in the parking lot to wake up his apparent co-worker, Loyal Muke, as played by Robert Blake. Muke's boss doesn't seem amused. We get a montage of that day's business and Muke is terrible at his job in many different ways. He wipes a wet dipstick across his boss's shirt while checking it. He throws up in the backseat of a car while he cleans the windows. At the end of the workday, everyone's being handed their paychecks, but Muke is being notified how many days he missed work. He blames the sickness in the family and his boss reminds him he has no family.
0: I don't, I mean, I didn't. Uh, What it was, see, want and got married here on Wednesday is what I want and did and uh boy that's when the old sickness took over ma'am yes ma'am sign right here
1: we cut to a nightclub Frankie's Fountain where Dinette is performing on stage Dinette's singing is awful and when Muke enters the bar he watches her from around a post covertly a waitress asks where he's been and he tells her that he's here to find out
2: fella Comes into a
1: place for a drink, and
2: he winds up a married man. You married Dinette, Dinette. Dusty? Yeah! I
1: so. The waitress informs him that Dinette has three children. Muke orders a bunch of drinks, and Dinette takes an intermission. Dinette cries in her dressing room for a moment, and when she returns to the dining area, she taps Muke on the shoulder, surprising him. She did not expect to find him here. He tells her that he likes it here, and that he just lost his job. Muke confesses to Dinette that he doesn't recall the events of their wedding night because he drank too much and she informs him that they didn't consummate anything because he passed out in a bathroom covered in shit and she had to clean it up. Muke is embarrassed by his behavior and starts drinking again. A common
0: theme for yes. Muke throughout the film.
1: Out of nowhere, Dinette asks Muke if he called his mother. Apparently on their wedding night he mentioned that he intended to and she was looking for a follow-up but he seems pissed about her bringing up his mom. He gets angry enough to start talking about how he doesn't intend to go through with the marriage. Dinette says that sounds fine as long as he can afford a divorce because they're super expensive and Muke starts backtracking. He tells her that a divorce isn't even necessary because an annulment is free since they haven't consummated the relationship. He accuses her of taking advantage of his drunkenness and he gets angrier and angrier. Don't
2: think about yourself at a time like this. Now when there's there's children, We, we, we can't think of that. You got responsibility, loyal! Oh, loyal. God damn you! You don't leave me now. You got morals. You see, loyal, don't do this to me. Loyal.
1: Until he sounds like Roger Rabbit after he's had a couple shots. <laughs> Dinette starts shouting in his face because if they don't appear to be husband and wife, then her in-laws will never give her custody of her children back, as she needs to be with her children again. Later that night, Muke admits to Dinette that he'd always thought he'd marry the Clairol girl. It sounds like he's talking about a specific woman he's seen in a shop, but he might also just be talking about the woman on the Clairol box.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Was he talking about a commercial? or? Yeah.
1: Yeah, but he says something like, I keep seeing her in the store or something like that, and it's like, are you literally talking about I the woman on the box? I think he's talking about the
2: woman on the box.
1: Because, as I'm sure you've already concluded, he's an idiot. He seems genuinely upset about not marrying the Clairol girl first. He tells her about his problems, and that he feels an unbearable need to drink whenever he's obligated to be somewhere sober, He seems worried that he won't convince her in-laws that he's a secure husband because he'll get drunk in front of them she tells him once she gets her kids back he can leave no strings attached the same song i mentioned at the start of the film is still playing 15 minutes in she explains that the kids live with their paternal grandparents whose names are void and nell i already hate all the character names in this film because talk to text is never going to understand the name muke properly no matter how (laughs) slowly i say it instead typing milk or mute. But what I care even less for is jokes, like a couple named Nell and Void. Like Nell and Void.
2: No, I get it. Do you get it? I'm still not laughing.
1: The next day, we see them driving to New Lizard, where her in-laws live. A convertible overloaded with rowdy teenagers scares the hell out of Muke in the next lane over. Dinette tells Muke that her firstborn, whose name is Human, saved her life when she nearly bled to death once after an accident. Her former husband, Jim Bob, crashed the car really bad, and his head smashed like a melon. Human has trouble sleeping now. Her in-laws took the kids when she was in the hospital getting regular blood transfusions. Her husband used to say that they were going to leave for California together, but she has visions of dying in earthquakes, so they never went. While they drive, Dinette shows Muke a scar on her hand where she pierced her palm with scissors as a child. They pull up and park outside a diner named Void and Nell's, Later we see everybody mid-meal inside. Evidently, they have arrived in the aftermath of Nell's sudden hospitalization. Jim Bob has a sister too, and she's here. While they eat, Muke learns from Dinette's children that she promised to take them to California. A proselytizer enters the diner and takes a seat at the bar. The
2: Lord is coming, buddy. Are you ready for it? Right now?
1: Crazy Bible Man starts shouting at Muke for some perceived slight, and then the guy leaves. At the end of the scene, we learn that Dianette's sister-in-law is named Tragedy. Is that what she called her? It I seems like she called I her Tragedy.
2: I, it's, I had a real hard time understanding what anyone was saying. It's not the
1: name film. that she's credited as, and they right. call her Aunt something else later.
0: I thought her name was Ermi.
1: Yeah, they they call her Aunt Ermi later, but it really sounds like she's, she's referring to her as Tragedy in a sentence. Void takes Muke and a couple of the kids on a drive void assures his family that nell will be okay at the end of all this and we cut right to nell's funeral
0: oh this is nell's funeral
1: yeah Mm -hmm. okay who did you think died
0: i thought this was jim bob
1: oh no no, i I
0: thought jim bob had died
1: not that recently
0: recently and and this and they were going to his funeral oh man this movie
1: (laughs) yeah so nell died after the funeral aunt ermie locks herself in void's truck and waits for a ride to the airport Dinette thinks Aunt Ermie blames her children for Nell's passing, and she's furious about it. When Dinette carries her children back to the car, she has to wake the sleeping Muke across her back seat. He finishes his last beer and then strolls through the cemetery. The kids complain that Muke farted in the car before he left. We cut back to Void at home, and Muke is trying to convince him to go on a hunting trip to relax, and he and Dinette can take over running the diner, but Void announces that he's selling the place, because he can't run it without Nell. Muke tries to talk him out of selling and suggests he give some thought to his grandchildren.
0: But you gotta think clear now. You just gotta and uh, think about the brood, Jim Bob's brood. Well, he's your brood now, loyal. I'd say. My brood.
1: My brood.
0: I'd say my my brood.
1: Muke's brain seems to short circuit at the thought of being responsible for the kids and collects Void's shotgun to head out back dinette follows him and finds him sitting with the shotgun barrel to his face she begs him not to leave her alone in the world dinette seems to think and it's never confirmed that jim bob's parents blame her for his death all we get is that they told her after he died that they'd hoped that she could straighten him out which doesn't sound that judgmental to me it honestly just sounds like oh it's a shame that didn't work out we were hoping that that being with someone might change him Mm -hmm. Dinette admits here that it wasn't just a car accident that killed her husband. He yelled Geronimo and jumped out of the car going 80 with her and three kids in the car. Muke tells her that he can't take her to California and she asks him to do what he can. The next day the family packs up a shitload of supplies from the diner and the same song kicks up again as they hit out on the road. Dinette does a weird little show in the passenger seat with a blue scarf. She's pretending it's the blue bird of happiness and that even if it seems gone it comes from the heart and you can always find happiness there
0: i feel like a lot of this dialogue is improvised for sure like especially when when blake starts flipping out about stuff yeah and just starts like
1: running around uh because it's badly improvised
2: it's nonsense i had such a, i can't even believe what a coherent story you've put together thus far i had no idea what they were saying half the time
1: the, they're talking in very exaggerated accents their accents the are
2: are are difficult to understand and they're talking about a million miles a minute like they're they're talking really quickly and half the time they're shouting
1: now the song from the first half of the film is over and we'll hear the bluebird of happiness for the rest of the movie at a truck stop iota the middle child is reading graffiti carved into a table and asks what peace means muke tells her it means shut up because he's trying to read a map she reads the full message
0: New lizard to Juarez and back in 12 hours, including peace, world's record.
1: Meaning that she's reading the word peas. She thought it was peace. Back on the road, Muke is bragging about his promptness en route to California. For context, he's driving a car with an infant in his lap.
2: If I say I'm going to be someplace
0: at 2 o'clock, like say on Tuesday, the other person might not be there, but I'll be there if it kills me.
1: Instead of pulling over to inspect the popped tire, Muke veers all over the road, way after he's already slowed down. Muke gets a spare on the car, but the spare is also flat and deflates immediately. Oh no, we're back to that first song again. To be clear, it's a fine song, just not 30 times in a row. We cut back to the car, back on the road again, but we never explain how.
0: Yeah, and because Loyal exits the scene by running out into the desert.
1: Right. We see the family sitting down to a meal at a diner and the bartenders talk about an acquaintance as though he's a saint for raising children that aren't his. Overhearing this, Muke stands to check the car for something.
2: Don't you worry, you'll run out on her. It's just a question of time.
1: Dinette panics that Muke will leave her and we cut to them on the road again. That night, the car breaks down again. Honestly, it just feels like this is an editing trick and they're still pulled over for that flat tire but they move the diner scene here. Because they needed to remind us that she's paranoid he's going to leave.
0: Yeah. Uh, There's a scene while they're driving, and I'm pretty sure they're driving past Magoo Rock on PCH. Yeah.
2: I thought the same thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Dinette assures Muke that a driver will be along shortly to save them. Muke asks her to give him a break. He's noticed that every time he goes anywhere on his own, she follows him around, paranoid he plans on leaving. Muke sneaks out into the hills to take a dump in the night, but his family has used up all the toilet paper, so he's wiping with a comic book.
0: Yeah, and th- this whole scene is very difficult because they're shooting night for night, like it's it's yeah. practically pitch black.
1: Later that night, after the kids have fallen asleep, Dinette offers Muke sex for the first time, terrified he'll leave her. Otherwise,
0: as a man, you are entitled to privileges, and I am entitled. I mean, it's the
1: law. I know that
2: i don't think that's true
1: it depends on the state are you kidding me no i'm sure that's a law there's (laughs) no way that's not a law (laughs) mississippi just banned slavery like eight years ago (laughs) unfortunately right as their lips meet they notice headlights in the rearview mirror and muke steps out into the middle of the road as it gets closer muke recognizes it as a diesel truck and assumes it won't stop because it's against the rules the truck very nearly sideswipes him but it slows to a stop just down the road and Muke chases after it. Dinette tries to drag all the kids along, fearing this is the moment he leaves her, but Muke leaves her begging in the street to get help from the truck driver. He tells her to stay with the car and keep the windows rolled up. As the truck rolls off down the road, a far-off lightning storm backlights the scene. It's actually a pretty cool shot. I liked that they got this. You see lightning striking the road way down ahead of them. Yeah, I
2: mean, they couldn't have possibly done it on purpose. No, for sure. But
1: (laughs) this is the kind of shot that you wouldn't get in a movie today, Because they wouldn't actually be shooting on some old country road in the middle of nowhere. They would be shooting it on a soundstage. The truck driver tells Muke that the closest she can drop him off is five miles from the gas station in town. It might have been funny if this truck driver was a cameo from Diane Cannon, since he drove her around in an 18-wheeler last year for Coast to Coast. But it's not her. We cut to Muke in the doorway of a random residence five miles from the gas station in town, and he's begging a Mexican family for a ride in his best Spanglish. The mother of the family tells her son to call his brother to come pick up Muke because this guy seems crazy. Muke understands the word loco and then freaks out for some reason and tries to make a run for it. We cut back to Dinette in the car, and the kids ask if Muke is ever coming back. As Muke runs away from the Mexican family's home, a car catches up with him and nearly hits him on the road. Somehow, he's gathered that this is the hermano that was called to give him a ride. Oh, Mr. Beaner, go away. I'm sorry for everything. The car skids off into the night. Muke walks the five miles to the gas station, but when he gets there, the attendant is deaf and shouty. What follows is a long scene where the joke is, look how loud these two guys can yell at each other.
0: It's the only laugh I got in the film is when he's trying to dial, and the attendant looks out the window and goes, wait a minute, where's your car? And then he looks at him like, where'd you come from? <laughs> like,
1: like he's a ghost?
0: Yeah.
2: Hey, oh, where's God.
0: your car? What, what, what's your phone number, sir? Where? You What's your phone number? Where'd you come from?
1: I got- Meanwhile, out in the middle of nowhere, a car pulls up nose-to-nose with Dinette and the kids, and a man gets out to approach them. The next day, a man on a motorcycle takes Muke out to where the car was, but there's no sign of it. He offers a ride back into town, and Muke takes regular swigs from the man's liquor bottle.
0: Well, and I like how they—he realizes this is the position that the car was. This is where the car was, because he runs up the embankment to where he took. And he a crap. finds
1: his shit. You know. Yeah.
2: <laughs> He's like, "Yep, this is where it was, all right." I left this mile marker here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We cut to a church gathering and Dinette and the kids are in the back row with a man who found them last night who we will learn is Alton and a large woman named Maxie. Then we cut to the group driving home from church. Muke is dropped off outside a police station by the motorcycle guy in the town of Krop. This town is called Krop. And he's completely wasted as he enters the station. Muke speaks with a cop who will likely arrest him for public drunkenness. But we cut away to Maxie's home where she's fixing a meal for the family. Alton tries to tell a funny story about some people who got hit by a train, but Maxie interrupts the story, not wanting to hear it again, but then corrects him that the story was about two nuns.
0: No, it was Rastus and Lizzie. It really
1: happened. Iota corrects the story again.
0: The way I heard it, it was Indians.
1: Maxie tells Dinette her folks was heading California way when she was a child, but that their transmission blew, and they traded Maxie for a repair on the car on their way. Dianette is a little upset by the story and excuses the kids from the table. Maxie tells Alton he's in charge of the children, and he seems weirdly interested in babysitting them.
2: I'm aghast,
0: for pity's sakes, Max. I'm aghast. Why are you aghast? Well, I don't want my kids going around thinking that, that I mean, it's natural to be, be traded in for a fixed transmission.
1: Maxie counters with maybe the most thought-provoking line of the film.
0: I'll tell you one thing. There's stories that would break your heart to
1: hear that ain't half bad to live through. Dinette insists it will be different for her because she and her family will stick together, but Maxie points out that she was stranded manless when they found her. Dinette insists that Muke is a good man and that if he left it was with good reason. Maxie invites her to stay, but she's still dead set on making it to California. We cut back to Muke, who has dragged the police back to the Mexican farmhouse that he ran from yesterday. He tells the cops that he had a premonition that a member of this family tried to run him down last night and then went after his family. He's basing this on, one, having seen Mexican people, two, losing track of his family, and three, just being a dumb racist person. He asks the police to interrogate the family. We cut to the police driving Muke and three members of the family down the highway. The police car parks and lets everybody out by some train tracks and then drives away. What is happening here? I don't know. Why did the police drive some of the Mexicans and Muke to a random intersection?
2: I don't understand the entire Mexican family storyline for the entire film. And
0: it's not even over.
2: I know.
1: So what what has happened so far is that he stopped by this house and he's like, Hey, can you help me? And they said some word that spooked him. And he was like, Oh my God, these people are crazy. They're going to hurt me. And so but, he ran but that's, away.
2: D- I mean... The, the mom, although obviously I don't speak Spanish, but she didn't seem like she was saying like...
1: No, she didn't say anything bad. She said, call your brother because this guy seems crazy. I don't want you to drive him anywhere. Call your brother. Yeah. And he just heard the word crazy and he was like, all right, I'm getting out of here. Yeah. And then he assumed that the person who almost hit him with the car was Mexican later. And then when he couldn't find his family, he assumed that... The Mexicans knew that his family was stranded on the side of the road somewhere, and they kidnapped them and the car somehow? Yeah.
2: I don't know. Very bizarre. And
1: now the police drop them all off in some random place, and I don't know why. Back at Maxie's, Iota is coming out of the backyard outhouse, and Dinette points out that she has mistakenly used the men's room, where she found more graffiti to ponder over. We
2: aim to please. You aim to please. Why does it say that?
1: Do you understand that joke?
0: I do.
2: I do.
1: Can you explain it to me? I don't get it.
2: <laughs> stop peeing on the floor.
1: Okay, hold on. I can't <laughs> stop once I've started.
2: <laughs> it
0: stings.
1: <laughs> For this scene and a few prior to this, Barbara Harris's accent is veering into bizarre SNL character territory.
2: You was in the man's room out. What did I tell you about that one?
1: It honestly sounds like she's trying harder to make a funny voice than she is to convey a real person.
0: Go straight in the car and stop asking questions!
1: Dinette tells Maxie that Iota can handle the abuse but it's Human she's worried about since he's so sensitive. As the kids get back in the car, we see Human in the backseat of a different car with Alton and Alton is buttoning his shirt back up and grabs Human hard and says Now don't you tell. The implication is clear that Human has just been molested right in front of everyone but nobody is paying attention to it.
2: What the fuck is this moment?
1: I don't know, because they fucking never touch on it again. They don't
2: come back to it. I, I was just like, this is horrible. When are we going to address this? And we never do.
1: And is this the first time that's happened to him? I think no. I think this is a thing that human goes through. I think this is a reason that human is the way he is. I think it's probably something his dad did, too. Dinette leaves Maxie's farm. We cut to Muke hitchhiking when the younger kid from the Mexican family pulls up. The kid hangs a U-turn instead of offering a ride, but Muke recognizes him and makes a run for it. Dinette smacks the radio repeatedly in her car, searching for a radio station, and Iota informs her that smacking it won't help. Yo, know,
0: well, there's some satisfaction in hitting even when you know it don't help. I'll keep that in mind if I was you.
1: <laughs> I kind of like that joke actually. Like, I'm gonna hit you even though it's not gonna help. Leave me alone. Eventually, the smacking works, which is a thing called percussive maintenance. Muke is still walking along the railroad tracks about 30 feet from the road when he sees Dinette drive by and he shouts to human for them to stop. Either human can't hear him, doesn't recognize him, or doesn't care, and they continue down the road. I think he doesn't care. I
2: think he doesn't care because he clearly sees him. Yeah. But every time you say is, I think you're saying mucus.
1: Yeah. It's probably on purpose. <laughs> It's like when I was saying cervic in the Caddyshack episode and it kept driving you crazy. That's the Rodney Dangerfield character. Okay. Muke just jogs along the direction the car was headed. We see the Mexican kid's truck is now overloaded with friends and they're out looking for Muke to get back at him. We cut for to. What? Th- we don't know. For calling well, for the police and the dragging, police dragging them to that his house.
0: They
2: were I don't kidnappers. Know. Yeah. But
0: clearly the police didn't do anything it's not like any of them went to jail i
1: don't know what the police did unless literally the police said we're going to take you all and put you in a car and drop you in another jurisdiction because we do not give a fuck i don't know what what could possibly be the explanation for only three of you are going to get put in the car with the guy who's filing the complaint against you and then we're going to drop you all off in a random place but they're pissed off about that because anybody would be pissed off if someone dragged cops into their house and arrested three of them for no reason so now they're loading up this car to kick his ass, and we cut to Muke getting a ride from a one-armed man in a pickup. He notices the approaching truckload of Mexicans hunting him down, and he gets low in the cab.
0: What I told you there's snakes down there.
1: Snakes?
2: Rattlers. Holy shit!
1: Muke changes his mind back and forth between wanting to get bit or beat. The Mexicans drive on down the road, and Muke spots his family's car parked outside a roadside restroom. He finds Human alone in the car, gluing his mother's eyelashes to his face. And Human doesn't seem to care that he's back, so I'm sure he recognized him earlier, too. In the bathroom, Dinette is painting Iota's nails.
2: Like, why? 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 Why is this happening?
1: Why did anything happen in this whole movie so far? I don't know.
2: But you pulled over at a rest stop.
1: To do someone's nails. To
2: do somebody's nails. I'm
1: sure what, what happened was they got off to use the restroom, and while they were in there, they were like, Oh, can you do my nails? And she's like, fine. Whatever, because they're all idiots. Muke sees the truckload of Mexicans coming back down the road again and runs to hide in the bathroom. The men all climb out of the truck and hang out outside the bathroom. I don't know if they know he's in there or just by no, coincidence they pulled over here. I don't think they do. Muke starts talking to Dinette through the bathroom wall and she's ecstatic to hear from him, but he accuses her of stealing the car. She asks where he's been if he's trying to abandon them and he fills her in on the whole ordeal.
2: Does that sound like deserters to you, ma'am? It sounds like a tallest
1: story I've ever heard is what it sounds like. He tells her to head out and start the car so that the Mexicans don't see him and he'll run out at the last second. When she tries to, she ends up flooding the engine. Instead of waiting for the Mexicans to leave, he races over to criticize her car starting efforts and then starts shouting loudly at her, drawing attention to himself. The Mexicans come after him and get an arm through the window to drag him out of the car But finally, he gets the car started and drives off. The other men come close to catching up, but eventually, Muke is able to outrun the other car, and the whole family celebrates.
0: Yeah, he outruns it by shouting, drive,
1: drive. Over and over again. Over again, yeah. With his foot just mashing the pedal to the floor.
2: Because apparently, up until this point, he's never gone over 65 miles an hour. That's
1: what he said. But they got the car up to 80 right now. We see the family stop at a small roadside shop for a bit, and there's a lot of inserts of Muke and Dinette holding hands for some reason. Like we didn't know that they cared about each other. They've cared about each other the whole time. This isn't anything new. As they leave, Muke comes out with a small box, but insists it's a surprise. It turns out he bought a hamster. That will surely not survive the week.
2: <laughs> I was gonna say the day. Yeah, like, honestly, I, was I was sure this thing, like, this thing was gonna be th- dead. He was
1: gonna drop it and it was gonna get hour. hit by a car already. <laughs> well, they, or it was gonna fall into the car somewhere. Well they have
0: it on the dashboard. It's for just gonna it crawl into a
1: vent
2: yeah. and die.
1: <laughs> yeah, it for sure will just die if they keep it on the dash in direct sunlight.
2: They didn't have
0: no bluebirds, so I did the best I could. Oh. Mr. Bluebird of Happiness. Oh. It's a, a hamster of happiness for all of
1: us. The movie could have ended here, but yep. it sure didn't. <sighs> the car is broken down again. They fix it, and then they drive some more. Muke and Dinette bond over a pretty sunset.
0: You know another thing about a sunset? <laughs> the longer you wait, the more beautifuler it gets. And I think the more beautiful it gets, the longer it <laughs> takes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say.
0: You you have some tongue on you, Luke. And when you put your mind to it, silver.
1: First of all, what he said first made more sense than what she reworded it as. Yeah. And then she compliments his silver tongue after he just said that she made what he said better. They tell each other they love each other and the film ends on a shot of the hamster in a small cage on the dash and credits roll over the open road.
0: Thumbs down.
1: Thumbs oh, down my God. for sure. Yeah. Um this movie reminded me of Melvin and Howard a lot because oh, yeah. it's a it's a slice of life thing with dumb characters mm-hmm. who you don't really sympathize with or care about what happens to them. Um, But also where it seems like smart people made the movie. Even though all this weirdness is happening that I don't care to follow.
2: It's almost completely incoherent. I, 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 I know that you put down words that made it into a story. But I struggled to understand what was happening ever because they just
1: made no sense. Yeah.
0: With a movie like Hard Country... I at least was able to follow that, you know.
1: I uh, mean, what I said made sense, though, right? Yeah, like that's the that's the story of the film, sort of. No, no, yeah, and I think they are uh, on their way to California at the end. I should say,
0: yeah. I, I can well, we can assume, uh, but but why and to do what? Like she's
1: going to be an actress, of course, She's going to be a famous actress.
0: I, I don't really know what to say about this movie other than, I, I just I felt nothing, and. Like you said, Jesse, I could barely understand what they were saying half of the time, and the the names and like like just reading that opening crawl, I wanted to post like the Godzilla had a stroke while reading this and fucking died, like (laughs) meme.
2: I feel like Robert Blake would have been absolutely convicted if they made the jury watch this during
1: his trial. (laughs) That's true. He could have saved time and just showed it to his wife a couple times. <laughs> would have killed her. <laughs> or she would have killed herself. Oh, yeah, there you You're go. You're not going to put secondhand hearts on again.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um. it's pretty bad.
0: And it's from Hal Ashby, which is really disappointing. Well,
1: you know what's interesting, though? Okay, it is from Hal Ashby. And I do think there's smart stuff here, like the whole story about the, the guy killing himself and the family being put in this situation, like... Even though the way they talk is dumb, it never feels fake. It never feels like what they're describing didn't... like. It it feels like something that could actually happen to two dumb people. No part of the story is unbelievable. Yeah, And it's complicated enough to be a real family story.
2: I don't think that that makes it tolerable.
1: No, no, not at all. That's not what I mean to imply.
2: Yeah, thumbs down.
1: Thumbs down. Um letterbox what are we thinking?
2: Um, okay, so I have it at number sixty out of sixty.
1: Wow, really?
2: Yeah, I never need to see this again. You could literally put on any movie we've watched but thus far, and I would rather watch it than this again.
1: Um, I have to say, and and I didn't really bring it up before in our reviews, but uh Robert Blake in this movie and I already hate Robert Blake. I, I hated him before he had someone kill his wife. Like yeah. that, I've I've always hated Robert Blake, and in this movie, he's at his absolute most annoying. It's like imagine Jim Carrey on Coke, and that's Robert Blake in this movie.
2: Yeah, I'm like I do not like Jerry Lewis, and I would much rather watch Hardly Working than this movie.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I I wouldn't either, but I I it's close. It's close. Richard, what is your letterbox?
0: Uh, I'm at fifty five out of 60 which puts it uh below just a gigolo and above maniac
1: i also have it in 55 out of 60 i have it just under permanent vacation and just above hard country the only ones below that are scream hardly working all night long and just a gigolo
2: yeah and oh i'd much rather watch any of those movies but like i should say that that everything is above this so there's nothing below it but uh directly above it is image of the beast
1: Okay, <laughs> so you're finally ready to watch that again.
2: Yep, there we go. I'm on it.
0: <laughs> your de- your desert island pick: Image of the Beast or <laughs> this movie.
1: Director Hal Ashby previously directed The Landlord, Harold and Maud, The Last Detail, Shampoo, and then simultaneously directed Being There. Uh,
2: How did this happen? I don't understand
1: well after this there's not that much great stuff from him this is the sudoku that he was doing while he was working on being there this was the dumb story that he had in his back pocket the whole time
2: yeah but he seemed super dedicated to it based on your production notes and i don't understand why
1: i don't think he was super dedicated i think the fact that he did it on top of another movie means that it was just kind of like a i want to stay busy but, no. you
2: said, but you said he paid more than he was originally... Paid no, no, no. Script.
1: That was the screenwriter. The screenwriter oh. paid more to get his script back because okay. he wanted to make it. All right, cut this whole section out. Okay. He also edited In the Heat of the Night. Writer Charles Eastman wrote All American Boy Before This and Nothing After, and that's all right. The music here was from Willis Allen Ramsey. This is his only composer credit. Most of his credits are for writing Muskrat Love, which appears in Pushington, Detroit Rock City, an episode of Space Ghost Coast, Coast to Coast, Anchorman 2, and The Nice Guys. Cinematographer Haskell Wexler, why did, why did he work on this? He was the DP on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, In the Heat of the Night, the original Thomas Crown Affair, The Conversation, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then this. Editor Amy Holden Jones previously edited Corvette Summer, but not much else and nothing after this. She played a Hertz clerk in Piranha. She's the uncredited writer of Slumber Party Massacre. She also wrote Mystic Pizza, Beethoven, Indecent Proposal, and The Getaway among others robert blake was loyal muke he was in coast to coast last year he's in beretta he is beretta in beretta i think never seen it he was in in cold blood and he paid a guy to kill his wife one time
2: (laughs) and got away with it
1: barbara harris played dinette dusty she was sandra in a thousand clowns i love a thousand clowns i don't like this movie (laughs) <laughs> I like Barbara Harris and I like her in A Thousand Clowns. She's so cute in that movie. She's so funny. And her and Jason Robards have this terrific chemistry. But in this movie, I, f- I honestly blame Hal Ashby for her performance in this movie because it's completely over the top. Uh, she's also Albuquerque in Nashville. She's Miss Andrews, the mom in the original Freaky Friday. Jessica Stansbury played Sandra D. Erica Stansbury also played Sandra D. That's the youngest child.
2: Twins. Twins. Yeah, it, was a, it was a little kid. It was like a toddler.
1: Right. Burt Ramsen played Void. He was Delno Baptiste in Carney. And Carl J. Richards in Borderline last year. And he was also Stinky the Blind Guy in Inside Moves. Ah. Shirley Stoller played Maxie. She was Steven's mother in the Deer Hunter. Steve is played by John Savage from Inside Moves. She was also on Pee-wee's Playhouse, where she played Mrs. Steve. She's also Mama Reese in Clute and Spike the Bartender in Frankenhooker. Woody Chambliss played Deaf Attendant. That's the guy at the gas station. He was Curtis Pitts in Cloud Dancer for a minisode earlier this season. He also had regular roles on Gunsmoke and Yancey Derringer. Gwen Van Dam played the Waitress at Frankie's. The waitress at frankie's oh that frankie's fountain that's where she starts the film working or no that's the it's a nightclub yeah yeah she was mrs Beatty and stir crazy and she's back as mrs fazenda in true confessions later this season spencer quinn played swollen boy who's swollen boy
2: swollen boy
1: it's an adult character no idea he was the nanny MC in The Little Dragons last year. That's the guy who who led the si Doe and okay. whatever else. Uh, Ron Spivey played the God-fearing customer. He was Kicker in Hard Country. Patricia Wilcox played the Car Wash Cashier. And she was Nancy Noonan, Danny's sister in Caddyshack last year. I think that's everything for secondhand hearts. If you guys have any thoughts to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Fan, which IMDb describes like so. Douglas, a record salesman, is an obsessive fan of actress Sally Ross. When his letters are rejected, he strikes out at her and her loved ones. we we'll leave you now with the trailer for The Fan.
0: Dear Miss Ross, I have finally worked up enough courage to write you. I am your greatest fan, because unlike the others, I want nothing from you. The only thing that matters to me is your happiness. I am a friend. And I am someone you can turn to in times of distress. But I know the time is now right. We will be lovers very soon, my darling. And believe me, I have all the necessary equipment to make you very, very happy. You got a
1: really raunchy letter from that
0: weirdo fan I tried to tell you about. I think she's taking advantage of me. Sally, he's driving me crazy. I recommend you fire. I recommend you fire.
1: What God's name did you say to him in your letter? I don't pay you to upset my fans. You don't even know your fans. I'm the one that has to put up with them. He's the one that's gone too far.
2: He wants to be your lover, for Christ's sake. What was I supposed to do, give him an appointment? I want to touch you. I want to be in love to you. Just ignore him from now on. He's harmless. Miss Goldman? My darling, it was over very quickly and I feel glad because I never wanted her to suffer. we are dealing with a psychotic, a potential killer. Am I safe, Inspector? Who knows?
1: He's after me now, isn't he?